This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Armin Budish and the Cuyahoga County Council want to create slush funds, even though they adamantly say they're not slush funds. $86 million of American Rescue Plan money they want to flush down the toilet. But we're not going to talk about that today on Today in Ohio because Leila Tassi isn't here. We'll wait till she comes back because she's our expert on it. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. No Seth today. We're missing our political analyst, and we will carry on in this small group. It was snowing this morning, Lisa. It was, and there was black ice on my patio when I went out to get the paper. So, <laughs> But hey, supposed... it's going to be in the 60s by the end of today. I know. You could almost put a, a camera on the thermometer and see it moving in real time to go from 32 to 67. Uh, let's hope it happens earlier than later. Let's begin. Is the battle over congressional redistricting in Ohio dead for the 2022 election? Laura, this is sad. It is sad. I don't know that it's completely dead. You know, they haven't called it yet, but Republicans seem to have won this battle because the primary ballots are already being prepped with the latest Ohio redistricting commission map, which favors Republicans to win 10 of Ohio's 15 congressional districts. And that was the second attempt and because obviously the Ohio Supreme Court struck down the first one. But these will be on the ballot for the May primary because the fight against them has basically fallen apart. And Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor gave the parties 25 days to present their written arguments and any supporting evidence. She did that yesterday. Plus, there's a bunch of other days to file briefs, replies, etc. So you, this, this could be two months. I mean, we could be, well, the election could be over and they could still be arguing about this. Yeah, I get the feeling that that everybody's a little bit worried with the congressional redistricting, which is different rules than the, mm-hmm. the, the legislative, that there's a, that the federal court, if it takes it, could lead to an ugly Supreme Court precedent that only state legislatures can draw lines and the people be damned. It doesn't matter if you have a constitutional amendment that says otherwise. And so you see people putting the brakes on, the courts putting the brakes on, the people suing are putting the brakes on to stretch that one out. And so we will be stuck once again with unfair congressional districts in Ohio. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's slightly better than what we've had, which was, you know, we've had 16 seats and 12 of them have been Republican solidly. So now we're looking at 10 out of 15, but um, that's not much better. No, it is not. Okay, well, that's over, but the legislative continues, and we're waiting to see what happens with the Supreme Court in that one. We talked about that yesterday. What's funny is that, you know, they're still not 
agreement in the Supreme Court here because the 25 days came from Maureen O'Connor while the Republican justices still said that's too fast and they wanted to lag out three months. I'm like, are we going to push this to the 2024 elections? <laughs> like, how slow do they want to, you know, walk this? Well, they want to slow walk it until Maureen O'Connor's gone. That's true. Gone, You're, and right. You're right. Sharon Kennedy will win. A big presumption, but that's the that's the danger. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are Governor Mike DeWine's themes in his first TV ad of his re-election campaign? Lisa, I think it's interesting. He declined to debate the opposing candidates, but on the day of that debate, he put out his first ad. Yes, it's part of a package of cable TV ads that started running yesterday and will run all week. He spent about $131,000 on this ad buy. It's a 30-second ad, and it's about his tough fights that he faced and it was filled with GOP buzzwords like big city unions which is when he talked about the Cleveland Teachers Union trying to delay reopening of schools because of COVID. He also called on China unfair trade tactics and you know when he mentioned that Ohio was number three in U.S. manufacturing and then he talked about radicals who want to defund the police when he was talking about you know spending more money on public safety so yeah it's it's all there and it's kind of I don't know I've never heard DeWine use buzzwords like this in ads before so it's a little bit jarring to me well it's also a little bit blinking that he does feel vulnerable to the Republicans that are coming at him from the right saying he's not Trumpy enough and so his whole demeanor has been to try and seem as in the pocket of the fringe of the Republican Party as possible. And nothing demonstrates that more than his complete lack of leadership in this redistricting battle. He could have stopped what happened this week. He could have stopped Matt Hoffman from pulling out of the Supreme Court ordered process and said, no, 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 we're going to finish the process we promised to start. He didn't. Instead, he voted with Hoffman. And so I, I would expect that once we get through the primary the Democrats will be publishing ads that seriously question his leadership skills because he is, since about two years ago when these attacks from the right started, he's really showed a pretty serious lack of leadership. And yeah, and and, and of course, a lot of Republican candidates are take going to take uh credit for this COVID relief money, which was passed by Democrats at the federal level. And in the ad, DeWine says, oh, we have $250 million on first responder and law enforcement grants, which, you know, no, of course, he's not in the Congress, but none of the GOP congressmen in Ohio voted for that. The attack on the Cleveland school system is interesting because we talk often here about the urban-rural divide in Ohio, that the the rural elected legislators hold sway over the cities and that the cities lack full representation. It seems like Mike DeWine is saying, I don't care about votes in Cleveland. I'm going to use Cleveland as as an emblem of what's wrong with Ohio and how I beat it up to to show that I'm strong to get the rural votes. He's actually contributing to the polarization of the state. Oh, that's an interesting outlook on it. We'll have to see what future ads do. But yeah, that one about the Cleveland schools kind of really kind of hit me in the solar plexus there. I was like, really? Come on. 
Well, and what people forget, the COVID was new. We didn't know what the effect would be. And Eric Gordon closed the schools because he knew a lot of these kids come from single-parent families. And if they were coming into the school every day and then they take COVID home and it makes their single-parent deathly ill, the kids wouldn't have anybody to provide for them. I mean, he, he had a very difficult choice to make. And it's interesting that the governor is slapping him when he was looking out for the best interests of people. You can disagree with what he did, but I don't think you can question the motive of why he did it. Mm -hmm. So using that as a red flag in your ad is a little bit cheesy or a lot cheesy. Mm -hmm. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. With the CDC opening the door for a whole bunch of people to get a second coronavirus booster shot, should we get them now or wait for the next surge? And Laura, I guess I shouldn't ask in the first person because I already got mine. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, what do you think, Chris Quinn? Should you go get a shot? Uh, I'm not quite eligible yet. I cannot wait till I am eligible. But um, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday authorized a second booster, either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines for anyone 50 and up and for certain younger immunocompromised individuals. And then later, the, later yesterday, the CDC expanded the eligibility. So then there's the question of who should actually go out and get this shot. And a lot of doctors basically say, you need to talk it over with your doctor. Julie Washington did this story, and she talked to Keith Armitage, an infectious disease doctor at uh, UH, and he said he would recommend it for anyone over 65 if it's been more than six months since their first one, and the same for anyone 50 to 65 anyone with chronic medical condition. And the only reason he would say hold off is if you got really sick with any of your first three shots, then you could, you know, weigh that. Okay. Well, and the, the, the government had already said people who are immunocompromised over a certain age, I forget what it was, should also get the shot. That's been out there for a while. Mm-hmm. So when the CDC came out yesterday at, at whatever it was, 3.30, 3.25, and said, okay, this is what we think people should do, I used the immunocompromised exception and immediately <laughs> set up an appointment and got it because I am missing a key element of the immune system so what what do you what do people think should should people go get the shot or should they wait for the surge i i don't want to wait for a surge because a lot of times we don't know it's surging until you're already in the middle of it and then you know you still have a lag time of how long those boosters take to to ramp up so as soon as i'm eligible i'm ready to go it's you know i got my my booster in november so I guess that would put me in May. Yeah, I got it in October. There was an Israel study that has not been peer-reviewed that found that people with the fourth shot had a 70% less chance of dying. The problem with the study is it only involved volunteers, and the volunteers, people think, might be more health-conscious to begin with, and Mm -hmm. that could skew that number. There was another study that people were talking about yesterday that showed people who got the coronavirus after the third shot and after the fourth shot had almost identical symptoms. And so there were people arguing that the fourth shot really doesn't do anything to help you. It do, there's no doubt that it boosts the antibodies. I mean, a week mm-hmm. after you get it, your antibodies are back up high. But if you're not being exposed to the coronavirus, how much is that necessary? Again, right. for me, it was a no-brainer. I got the <laughs> shot immediately. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're go- getting into the warm season here, right, where even the last two years it hasn't been so bad and people have relaxed a little bit. So maybe people want to say, I don't think, you know, I'm going to be outside all summer. My kids aren't going to school. 
I maybe I don't know. It depends on your situation. If you're going back to the workplace and you're going to be in air conditioning sitting at a desk next to somebody else, maybe you're like, yep, it's time to get my booster. Well, and people are returning to the workplace now in, in hybrid situations, and, and that, I think, plays a role in it, too. Lisa, what do you think? I'm 64. Um, I'm going to make an appointment to get my booster. I, I'm with Laura. I don't think you should wait till the surge is here and, and cases are going up before getting it. And I urge anybody, you know, especially somebody who's over 75. I mean, they, everyone that over that age should get a booster, I think. Nobody was talking about this yesterday, but we have seen reports of it in the past month. The companies are supposed to reformulate the vaccine eventually to incorporate the most current forms of the virus, which I would think when that happens, we would all line up once again to get the shot. We're still getting the original coronavirus shot, and there was always the talk that this would be like the flu shot where they're incorporating the latest the latest mutations in it so we'll have to see i sent out a question on subtext this morning to the thousand plus people that that get our text messages each day about stuff we're working on asking for their thoughts so it'll be interesting to see what they say if we get enough response we'll put together a story on where people have landed you're listening to today in ohio Will the Cleveland Clinic London, which opened Tuesday, attract enough high-paying patients to justify the $1 billion investment? Lisa, we talked last week about the opening was coming. It had been long delayed for a variety of reasons. But Julie Washington took a different tack. Is it worth the investment? And this remains to be seen. I mean, there are some profitability issues that are certainly concerning. This $1 billion, 184-bed facility opened yesterday in central London. It's a private hospital. And this opens at a time when international travel is still down, affected by COVID. There's increased U.S. competition from U.S. healthcare centers. And then private hospital revenue, which this hospital is, Cleveland Clinic London is private. Private hospital revenue is falling. Um, And some have pointed out that you're adding 14% to the private bed count when demand is lagging. So this could lead to a glut of private hospital beds. But Cleveland Clinic CEO, Dr. Tom Mihaljevic, he anticipates patients from all over the world. They're expecting most likely they will come from the UK and around Ur- Europe. And he says that the decline in international patients is temporary. So of course he's putting a big face on it. And interestingly enough, we've been saying the price is $1 billion, but it actually might be a little more than that well it also comes back to they are the best heart hospital out there and if you are having heart problems and you can afford it wouldn't you want to go to the best Mm -hmm. and i think that's what they're planning to draw on you know we know that from a bunch of arab nations people have come here regularly to cleveland for heart issues maybe it'll be easier for them to go to the london hospital and maybe that'll attract more the cleveland clinic doesn't make a lot of mistakes in its expansions Mm -hmm. and i doubt that they've made a mistake here yeah uh ohio state university professor of economic development ned hill in his mind he thinks for cleveland clinic london to succeed it would have to lure very wealthy patients from the middle east and europe and there was an interesting kind of uh Backstory here, uh, the UK health system has a backlog through 
2023. That's the national health system, which most people are on, but they can't go to other countries for treatment if they're being treated in the NHS arena. But experts say that this may convince rich self-pay patients to seek care at Cleveland Clinic London because of the backlog in other hospitals. Yeah, that's clearly what they're counting on as well-heeled people that can afford their their level of care who can't wait for the national system. It'll be uh, interesting to revisit this in a year or so to see how they did. It's today in Ohio. Speaking about health care in Cleveland, how much do health care jobs dominate the economy in Cuyahoga County? Laura, this was interesting. We all know it's the number one health sector, but wow, by a lot. I had no idea it was this big that the healthcare industry employs more more workers than double that of the next largest industry, which is manufacturing. And uh, Zachary Smith looked at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that, and found jobs ranked in 2020 by the average annual wage. And there are some limits to this data. Some of the highest paid professions are not on it, like surgeons and other specialties. But they they looked at the common jobs that typically pay above $70,000 a year and, and looked at the top 20. And not all of them even require a full college four-year degree and pay good money. The These rankings are pretty respected because there's a rigor to them. This isn't made-up stuff. Right, because it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So this is a federal... Uh, ranking. It's not just, you know, whatever fly-by-night internet website decides to rank them. But, you know, the number one on the list is dentists, actually, which in Cleveland, Illyria, in our metropolitan area, make $210,000 a year on average, which I probably wouldn't have guessed they were higher paid than, I don't know, general internal medicine physicians, which is at one ninety-five. I don't know. They're not as high paid as veterinarians. I no, veterinarians are number eight on the list at 111,880. But maybe this was done in 2020, probably before the pandemic and before everybody got their puppy and started, you know, started trying to book, book vet appointments. Okay, interesting story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Which Ohio universities landed in the top 50 rankings for best graduate programs in the latest U.S. News report? Lisa, U.S. News really has captured this market. Every year they put out these ratings. Every year colleges do everything possible to move ahead. There's even been some scandal involved <laughs> uh, with people trying to fake it. But what's the, what's the latest for Ohio colleges? So uh, 50 graduate schools in Ohio, in, or I'm sorry. Let me roll that back. U.S. News and World Report and their top 50 grad schools in various disciplines, um, Ohio was pretty well represented. In, and actually, following on our previous story about healthcare, you know, salaries and everything, it's interesting that the grad school programs at these schools that rated high were like nursing master, biostatistics, and uh, uh, nursing. Uh, medical research and so forth. Ohio State University had 22 categories included. Their nursing master's program was number seven. That's the highest Ohio school in any category in this report. They also ranked in social work at number 11, biostats at 21, and computer science at number 34. Case Western Reserve, seven graduate programs on the top 50 list sounds familiar. Social work was number nine, nursing master again at number 11, and biostatistics at number 28. And Cleveland State and the University of Akron both landed on the grad school list for their part-time law programs, Cleveland State at 39 and University of Akron at 49. And University of Cincinnati, 
Nursing doctorate was number 45. Again, nursing master was at number 49. And medical research at number 43 for the University of Cincinnati. So you can see that the grad school programs that are doing best are mostly in healthcare fields. Laura, you're you're not that far away from when you're going to be thinking about college for your kids. Um, <laughs> Although do, not grad school, like that's on their I own. Know, but but do these rankings? Do you think these rankings affect that decision making process? What what is it? Is it just status for the colleges to get these rankings, or is there a marketing function that does attract students? Oh, I think absolutely the marketing attracts students. Everyone wants to go to a good school that's respected. And especially if you're going for a graduate program, like you're looking to get a job after that. And you want to make sure that you have all, you know, the accolades that you can get and, and be, if you want to be the tops in your field, then you're going to go one of the top rated schools. I mean, like what good is an MBA if you get it from a school no one's ever heard of? You know, I, I think these are prestigious and people look at the rankings for that. As they're making that decision, you know, you need you, you need a ranking to know that Harvard Law is a great <laughs> law school. No, I, I think Harvard's probably pretty safe, but I think sometimes you get unexpected um, schools on the list, and you take another look at the program. And these are specifically on programs, right? So they mean a little bit more than just the overall school. Okay, it's today in Ohio. How high has the number of juveniles charged with murder in Cleveland and its suburbs spiked? And how old was the youngest person charged this year? Laura Adam Faris put together a couple of great stories in the past week. One, listing all of the allegations in civil suits against Deshaun Watson. Mm -hmm. And then this story, looking at the way this trend is disturbing. Yeah, this is really distressing trend. Uh, there was a four-year high in 2021 with 22 juveniles charged with murder. That was up from 13 in 2018. And so far this year, I mean, we are still in March, and 11 juveniles have been charged with murder or aggravated murder, and that includes a 12-year-old boy. And that is just really there's there's no one reason to point to it. Obviously, people look at the pandemic, the stress of the coronavirus, and then just the increasing availability of guns even to juveniles and and the gun violence that's surging everywhere so i mean that's what the prosecutor is pointing to in several recent cases juveniles were targeted in part to steal guns and when everybody has a gun and there's kind of some kind of conflict then people pull out their own gun because they don't want to be the one shot first and charging a 12 year old with murder this is a crazy case. So there's a 12-year-old boy accused of fatally shooting a 19-year-old man in the stairwell of an apartment building. U.S. Marshals found him and two other juveniles who are also charged with murder with six handguns, four 12-gauge shotguns, a 22 caliber rifle, and a, an assault rifle. Like, what? All in but, their house. But what, what is the point of charging a 12-year-old with murder? Are we really going to hold a 12-year-old accountable for poor decision-making in that, in that well, respect? Well, I, I mean, this, this is... kid had already been on, like, I don't remember, I think it was on probation from an earlier charge. So at some point, you know, we've had this discussion about the carjackings. Like, I understand that the idea is to rehabilitate children because, I mean, a 12-year-old is one year older than my kid. And like I said yesterday on the podcast, it would not let them have a pellet gun, right? But and these kids are young and their brains are not formed and obviously they don't have great role models in their life. But at some point, there is a public safety issue here, right? And so, but you're right. And, and all the experts say, look, 
raising punishments for juveniles, turning them over to adult court, putting them in jail, this is not the way to treat this. You need to you need to give kids something to do. You need to make sure they have activities and role models and mentors and keep them engaged, that you need to give them mental health professionals because this is the symptom, but, not the cause. But if this ele- it's 12-year-old, presumably was 11 when they committed their previous serious crime and is in the system, whose fault is it that the kid has escalated to a murder case? Is it, is it the kid's fault? Is well, it... The guardian's fault? Is it the juvenile court's fault? Because once they get into the juvenile court system, the whole purpose of that system is to get the kid reoriented and clearly not happening. Right. Exactly. But you can't put a parent in jail for a kid kid's misbehavior. I mean, well, you can. obviously there are a whole lot of issues here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a disturbing story by Adam Freese. Check it out on Cleveland.com. What warning does our travel expert Susan Glazer have for vacationers this summer if their plans include a car rental? Lisa? This story was in the Sunday paper along with Susan's uh, take on her visit to Phoenix, Arizona. So this grew out of her own experience. When she was in Phoenix at the airport, she waited in the thrifty car rental line for over an hour. There were over 100 people in line. Two hours she was actually in line. And while she was standing in line, she got on her phone and tried to rent another car, hoping, you know, she could find something, you know, a car and she said that most of them were either sold out or way too expensive so when she got to the front of the line she did get a car and quite honestly I'm surprised she did if she was in a line that long but she is saying because of her experience y'all need to get your car rentals early that's her biggest you know advice reserve early at least one month before you plan to travel she also says that if you join loyalty and reward programs that could help she specifically mentioned hertz gold avis preferred and nationals emerald club they are all free to sign up she herself did sign up for them Um, and she said that certain car rental companies seem to handle inventory better because with rental cars you have no shows you you know they're hard to predict so you really don't know what your inventory is on any particular day But she says that Enterprise, National, and Alamo seem to handle their inventory just a little bit better. She says if you have reservations and you don't get a rental car, you can rent from a competitor and charge the difference to the original company that you uh, contracted with because a rental agreement is a binding agreement. Huh. I was not aware of that. Laura, you've traveled recently in reserve rental cars. You didn't quite have quite the same experience. I didn't have a bad experience uh, recently when I went. I rented a car in Seattle for like eight days and we had a Ford Edge, I believe. And it was about six hundred and fifty dollars, which when we first got there, they were like, well, we don't have your car ready. And there was like very small line because I was expecting a really long line. And they're like, we can give you um, like a Ford Expedition. I was like, no, I am not driving a Ford Expedition or a minivan. We waited a half hour. We got the car. It wasn't too bad. And then I just made a reservation for August. But I got to say, Rich Exner, who for a while wrote a business column, like a personal business column for us, gave me the best tip to go to autoslash.com and basically put in what you want and you get bids. And you're like, okay, I can afford that. And what's crazy to me is that rental cars agreements don't require credit cards so you could literally cancel them the same day and you're not out any money I, I don't know that that's the best way for anybody to be doing business okay you're listening to today in ohio 
The judge who forced into public view the names of First Energy officials who approved all of that bribery has been immersed in his own legal fight for a few years, one that he just won. Laura, what was that about? So this is U.S. District Judge John Adams, and he had been basically accused of misconduct by refusing to take this mental health evaluation. And uh, this fight has been going on for a long time, all the way back to 2013. And Adams had been on the bench for a decade by then. But he demanded to know why a magistrate judge should not have been held in contempt for missing a deadline in a Social Security case. And four federal judges filed a complaint against Adams. They claimed that he was an it was extreme, unwarranted, and unjustified abuse of judicial discretion. So this went back and forth for years with demands and Adams refusing, and he, they wanted him to submit to a psychological evaluation. He initially provided a report by a local psychiatrist and found he didn't suffer from any diagnosable mental disorder, but that committee persisted. Finally, in 2016, he was under, ordered to undergo the evaluation. In 2017, he sued the Judicial Council because he didn't do it. And then he, the panel dismissed the issue two years later. But finally, it took till this year to basically dismiss the case altogether. Well, I'm glad for him because he was our hero. He forced <laughs> into public view information that the federal prosecutor has yet to release that anybody's yet to release about who the people were at First Energy that signed off on $60 million in bribes to corrupt the state house. He would not be denied. He was adamant about it in his court, and they finally complied, and we know it's CEO Chuck Jones and another guy. So way to go, and I'm glad his legal problems ended as a, res as a result of his fight there. That seems like an odd thing to seek to force somebody in a judicial role to get mental health review. And it doesn't happen very often. Then for this literally to last nine years mm. and took another two years for them to drop calling him, mis you know, committing misconduct. Like, I don't understand why it took so long. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it, it, it's I mean, good for him that he won, but I'm sure he's pretty annoyed by the whole thing. It's today in Ohio, and that's it for a Wednesday. Like I said at the top, come back tomorrow. We'll be talking about those county slush funds. It's amazing how willing our elected leaders are to squander big amounts of money, and it raises questions anew about whether we've really made a mistake in creating this form of government. Layla will be here. Laura will be here. Lisa will be here. And hopefully you'll all be here. Thanks for listening. <laughs>